hello! Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode, I'll be looking at at the music of Eric Zahn. Um, this is a story I read pretty early in my exploration of Lovecraft's works. I think it's the third or fourth story included in the Library of America <clears throat> anthology. Um, one of the first tales in that anthology. And therefore, I, that was the first real serious uh, exploration of Lovecraft I, I went into. So that, that's why I read this so early. I, I remember being really affected by the story pretty early on. I think there's a lot there that struck me. Kind of got the, um, kind of the student uh, living in this kind of grimy neighborhood. And then just, I think this does a, such a great job of just showing the, the dread of, of, of cosmic horror. I, I think it, pa it pairs with The Outer Gods pretty well um, in that it's, it's about really opening that window into the greater cosmos and then experiencing some horror from, from realizing the size of, of the universe and the man's significance in it. But this really has that really wonderful device of... <laughs> excuse me, of an old man uh, just playing his music to try to keep these forces at bay. He does, it's not clear why he does it. We never actually get his full story. How he learned that this music keeps these, these things away, we never really learned that. It's all left as a big mystery. So, um, you know, I think later in Lovecraft's career, he would have explored that more deeply and we would have got a little bit more of a story behind it. This is still when he's working more towards that, the kind of effect of a, of a, of a moment of, of terror. But anyways, overall, this is a really, really wonderful story. Uh, it's definitely top on my list of, of recommendations. I, I think, you know, I don't really think it has any problems in the sense that I wouldn't recommend it, but I think it is, like, there's so many unanswered questions that we really don't get the full story, and that, that's a bit disappointing. I actually do like getting... I don't, I don't always like all the mystery of it. I, that's one reason I like some of his later stories a little bit more because he does go in and kind of get us into the, the details of the creatures and the, the worlds and, and all that. But um, here it's just, it's just about the effect. It's about the experience of this young man kind of realizing the, the boundaries of the universe aren't what he thinks they are. Um, but yeah, the old man, Eric Zahn, he's, he's a great addition to this, right? I mean, this could have been a story of just uh, a young student in a shabby apartment who, who sees something, right, and, and it flees. But by adding Eric Zahn and adding this mystery of the violin and the violin playing, I think, well, it's a viol, right? It's, it's more like a, I think a viol is like somewhere between a cello and a violin. But anyways, it's... Uh, that addition to the story, I think, really kind of rise, raises it. it. It kind of is like Cool Air in that way, where Cool Air, very, very different plot and story and, 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 and effect that he's going for there. But, you know, the, the young man running into this weirdo old guy who, who kind of is, is tied to the supernatural in some way or something strange is going on with him. I think that's, that they haven't, that, that's a little bit similar. Or, or like Pickman's model is, it kind of has a similar effect too. Maybe actually closer to Pickman's model. I tend to think of those three stories together, um, honestly, maybe because I all read them around the same time. But they all, you know, kind of have the same structure of a, of a young man kind of running into some mentor or older figure or someone who, who knows something and then just through their his daily life, like learn something about them. So, yeah, I like all three of those stories. So anyways, this 
story, the music of Eric Zahn, was written in December of 1921. It was published in the National Amateur in March of 1922. So he's still publishing in these in these amateur journals at this time, and he would continue to do so for quite a while. He doesn't yet get into weird tales um, for these stories. Uh, it was reprinted, though, in Weird Tales when Lovecraft was, was publishing with them in May of 1925. It was republished in 1934 um, and elsewhere. Yeah. So Lovecraft called this his second favorite story after Color Out of Space. Um, he says, it isn't as bad as the rest. He wrote that in 1936. So he had his whole career when in his mind when he, when he wrote that. I don't know about that. I think there's ones I like more, but but I think this story really has a very very powerful effect. It's really really well done. It's just uh, the ambiguity may be disappointing for some for some readers. So, anyways, um, yeah, the the opening of the story kind of is almost like a Philip Dick setting in a way. Like you got a, a guy who can't find this place he used to live in, you know, when he was in college. It's not clear how much time has passed. Um, but he goes, but he's, he's trying to find this street, Rue, Rue de Lay, in, in, in Paris, I guess. And he can't find it on maps. You know, he can't find it when he walks around. He doesn't really know anyone who knew him when he lived there. So he really can't ask them where it is. And even so, they probably wouldn't be able to find it. So it's just, it's just the, the, geog the urban geography has changed in some fundament fundamental way. And it's not like there's a big crater there because some horrible thing happens. It's just gone or doesn't exist. You know, the whole where he was just seems to have never existed. This uh, is why I mentioned Philip Dick with this is because it's something Philip Dick did a lot. It's like the changing urban environments, the, the rapidity of the urban environments. And, you know, we experience this in the modern world, I think, when we're like walking through a street and we're like, wow, there used to be a store there, but now it's gone. I don't really remember what store used to be there, but it's new and it doesn't really look like much has changed. But in fact, there is an uncanny kind of feeling that something is different. Right. Um, actually, just I'm experiencing this now in, in Hangzhou because so many businesses were kind of failed during the coronavirus. I don't know if they would have failed anyways, but, you know, it, it's, it's when everything reopened up here in China and you're walking around and oh, new stores coming in. It's like that wasn't there before. And that that effect, that experience of just things changing subtly, it's really a function of modern cities, right? And the fact that this is set in Paris, I think it's kind of fascinating because um, it's that's a city that was literally rebuilt in the 1850s, right? I, I urge you to read uh, David Harvey's book, Rebel Cities. He has a really great section on the rebuilding of Paris and how that connects to um, capitalism in France and, and just the overall nature of capital to want to go to cities when it can't find anywhere else to invest in. So urban development becomes something that capital does when it really has nowhere else to go. It can't expand abroad. It can't expand a new industry. It just is sitting there. So you rebuild the city, right? And of course, that has all the effects of gentrification and, and you know, suburban sprawl and all those other kind of urban problems. Obviously, this stuff's not really on Lovecraft's mind. He's just... Uh, you know, wants to give us this mystery to start the story. But I think looking at it in the historical context of urbanization, I think it's fascinating because it is something that happens. You know, streets do disappear. Whole neighborhoods disappear and are replaced with other things. And, and maybe you could find it on an old map. This guy can't find it on a map at all. Quote, 
Uh, I have examined maps of the city with the greatest care. I guess it doesn't say it's Paris. I don't, I don't sort of imagine it's Paris, but French city anyways. Um, I have examined maps of the city with the greatest care, yet I've never again found the Rue de, de, de Say. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change. I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into the antiquities of the place, and I've personally explored every region or whatever of whatever name which could possibly answer to the street I know as the Rue de Say. But despite all of I've done, it remains a humiliating fact that I cannot find the house, the street, or even the locality where during the last months of my impoverished life as a student at, at, um, of metaphysics at the university, I heard the music of Eric Vaughn. Really, really great introduction. A really, really great catch. Um, you got a mystery. You have the mystery of the music. Um, so maybe, maybe he's a, like, thrust into the future. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, really, what the power of this story is this. The, the effect of this young man realizing what this music is, is for. And even that's not really clearly laid out for us. It's all, it's all a mystery. And we'll get to, to, to why it's more mysterious than perhaps had to be. But I think that makes maybe the story better. Maybe if we, if we get the full description, maybe it would have ruined the effect a little bit. So after realizing he doesn't, he's the only one that has memory of this, of this um, street and this neighborhood, he asks around for it. No one can help him. He has some kind of vague memory of, the, of what it looks like, but no one can really help him. He starts to go mad then, quote, his, um, that my memory is broken, I do not wonder, for my health, physical, and mental was gravely disturbed throughout the period of my residence in the Rue de Say. Um, so he's kind of gone mad. So that's a bit, bit another level of kind of the mystery here is just how much of this is, is his own madness or how much of this really did happen. Is he just a mental patient that's imagining all this stuff and, and wandering around the streets of, of, this, of the city looking for this street and everyone's like, oh, you're crazy. Um, he does have a fairly descri uh, description of it, a very good description of it, and it's a very, very modern city, um, so or very modern locality. It's not like of the ancient past, and I, I think that's quite interesting. Uh, it lay across the dark river bordered by precipitous brick blear window warehouses and spanned the ponderous bridge of dark stone. I don't, it, it was always shadowy along that river as if smoke from a neighboring factory shut out the sun perpetually. This river was odorous with evil stenches, which I've never smelled elsewhere, and which may someday help me find it, since I should recognize them at once. Beyond the bridge were narrow cobbled streets with rails, and then came the ascent, at first gradual but incredibly steep as the Rue de Say was reached. So again, very, very modern. It's an industrial town. It's, it's an industrial setting. And it's got all those, all, that, all the, the, the sights and sounds and smells of an industrial city, the smog, the polluted water, the, the ugly brick buildings, the warehouses, all. Uh, I, I don't think we've seen a setting quite like this uh, yet in, in a Lovecraft tale. Well, I had to stop and uh, make some coffee. It's, I didn't have any this morning, and I really didn't start feeling it till I, I started you know, talking about this. So, All right. Anyways, back to this. Um, yeah, so he after like kind of giving you this architecture, this setting, I think it's really, really a good description of kind of a of a dreary industrial urban environment. So it's not old. I mean, it, it would be a very different effect if it was an old city, you know, that he somehow was kind of warped back in time or without to explain things. But the fact that it is such a modern city really adds a lot of mystery to the fact that he can't find it. Um, and I think lends some credence maybe to the idea that he's he's gone mad and and some event drove him mad and he's reconstructing these things as, as an unreliable narrator. Now this kind of newness of the the city, I mean it it seems kind of there's like an oldness 
to it, kind of an old industrial feel, like an Innsmouth almost, but it can't be kind of historically. The weird setting, you know, France was still mostly an agrarian nation in, in, at the, during the, even the, during the time of World War I. So, yeah, of course it had its industrial revolution in some areas, but, you know, I don't know. It's, it's kind of old new in a way. Um, but the people, they're old. They are ancient. Quote, the inhabitants of that street impressed me peculiarly. At first I thought it was because they were all silent and reticent, but later decided it was because they were all very old. I do not know how I came to live on such a street, but I was not myself when I moved there. And then he talks about how his impoverishment led him to, to find an apartment in this Rue de Say. Um, and he gets this old landlord, uh, a name named Blandot, Blandot, and he gives him the, like, he puts him in, like, the, one of the tallest of these buildings he owns. He's on the fifth floor. And there's no one else really living in the house except this Arakzan, who is also on the fifth floor, I think. I think they're both on the, no. Um, he's up on the sixth floor, so he's on the fifth. So he's like one floor below. Eric Zahn lives on the, the peaked garret above. He's, so he's in the little cubbyhole, uh, kind of the, the, the attic apartment in the, above the fifth floor. But this is the tallest building in the, in the neighborhood. Um, of course, in the days before elevators, that's about as tall as buildings get, right? Fifth floor walk-ups is about as high as they would get in the days before elevators. And almost immediately, he begins to hear the music of Eric Zahn, who, who's uh, a musician. Um, he's dumb, so he can't talk. He can only really communicate through music and through, through writing. Um, and his career is he's basically plays in a, an orchestra at like a vaudeville, at a cheap theater. Um, he's an old German guy who lives here. Um, obviously, the name is, is, is German, but so... I don't know, is this, is our narrator French? I want to think he's like an American. I want to think he's an American in, 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 in France studying and, and he runs with this other foreigner. This, this neighborhood is where they stick all the poor foreigners, I guess. Um, but he starts to hear the music every night and the music's not right. It's just not normal, right? So that's, it's kind of like the color out of space where the color is not quite right. Here, the music is not quite right. Uh, quote, knowing little of the art myself, I was yet certain that none of his harmonies had any relation to music I'd heard before. It concluded that he was a composer of highly original genius. The longer I listened, the more I was fascinated until after a week I resolved to make the old man's acquaintances. Um, so, you know, modern music, modernism in music, is built on exactly what's being described here, right? Dissonance, um, odd... Uh, like kind of the breakdown of maybe harmony, uh, experimenting in different intervals, right? Going away from kind of the singing nature. I mean, romantic music, even classical music degree has that singing quality, right? That's why songs are so popular from that period. But when you get into modern music, you get all that dissonance and those unresolved tensions or those tensions that are pushed longer and longer than the human ear is really used to. I mean, we're used to this music now, I suppose, if you listen to a lot of classical music. You don't hear Igor Stravinsky and, and think it's like demonic or horrifying or, or outerworldly because you're used to it. You've heard that stuff before. But in the time that Lovecraft was writing, it's modern music was just beginning and modernist music, especially the more extreme elements of it. Um, and composers who really reached the limit of the classical tradition of, of 
of the you know in the romantic tradition it's kind of reached its limit of what it could do they start to experiment with different instruments with uh, neoclassical styles with uh, especially they experiment a lot with dissidents they experiment with non-western styles of music and they say well let's what do we can learn from african music or american music let's do let's incorporate blues or jazz or something into our classical music a lot of people started doing that kind of stuff um you know so a lot of experimentation i think it's one of the most fascinating parts of of music history um that first half of the 20th century we have all the experimentation and i'm not sure eric zahn is doing it's hard to imagine i maybe the student he's kind of conventional he you know he only knows his the weirdest he gets is maybe wagner or something so he doesn't really know this but you know certainly if this is set in 1920 there was plenty of weird music out there already being produced um, maybe the, all of this is kind of Lovecraft's reaction to modern music. I don't know. But forget that. Just in the narrator's point of view, this music is outerworldly, um, beyond anything. And maybe that's the proper way to interpret it. I hear I'm trying to kind of shove this music into trends of the time. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe we really should take Lovecraft's word for it here and say that this really is um, beyond uh, what is even capable of of human beings, human beings processing um, conceptually in, in music. There is a great book, by the way, on um, modern music called on 20th century music called The Rest is Noise. I forget the author's name, but I read it a few years ago. It's a really, really great introduction to modernist music and its reaction to 19th century trends. And that was, I think that's quoting someone. The title's quoting someone who's, who just says like, you know, it's noise, right? That's this music has, music's been transformed into noise. And a few times in the story, Lovecraft describes the music of Eric Zahn as essentially no noise. Um, so anyways, he goes upstairs to finally introduce himself to Eric Zahn, and we get the description. He's a, quote, small, lean, bent person with shabby clothes, blue eyes, grotesque, satyr-like face, nearly bald head. Um, yeah, the picture here shows him as like a short, as a little fat guy, a bald fat guy. Um, I think it's somewhere here it's described that he's fat too. Um, but he's got no furniture. He's he's really impoverished. Um, just all that's really scattered around is is just a bookcase full of sheets of music. Nothing on the walls. Really a bachelor apartment. But the only really sign that that there's any life there is in the, the remnants of of the music. Quote: Evidently, Eric Zahn's world of beauty lay in some far cosmos of the imagination. That's a really great addition there. Right. So I'll remember that next time anyone complains about my um, bland, dreary bachelor-esque apartment. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a bachelor, but um, I'm living in China now alone. So I'm kind of living a bachelor life. And so the next time anyone complains about how my apartment has no life, I will say there's a world of beauty beyond the cosmos of the imagination. And then they'll have no way to to criticize me anymore. Right. So this old man can't talk. Um, it seems he can't even write French because later on when he writes something, he writes it in German. But he just, the only way he can really communicate with this young man who comes to visit him is by playing music. And he plays normal music, essentially closer to normal, right? Playing from, from memory for an hour. And, you know, but it's, it's not quite the same music of Eric Zahn. It has some of the weird characteristics though. Uh, quote, to describe their exact nature, it's impossible for one unversed in music. They were kind of fugue with recurrent passages of the most captivating quality, but to me were notable for the absence of any of the weird notes. 
I'd overheard from my room below on another occasion. So it's not the music of Eric Zahn. It's just more conventional music, maybe a bit strange for um, the, the, the person kind of schooled in traditional 19th century music, but it's not the haunting notes that he heard when he's downstairs. Now, the whole encounter, though, is kind of weird, uh, despite it being seemingly friendly enough, is he seems pretty defensive about certain things in the house, uh, particularly the window. Uh, he doesn't want to have anyone to do, he's scared of the window, doesn't want anyone to have anything to do with the window. Quote, as he did this, he further demonstrated his eccentricity by casting a startled glance towards the lone curtain window, as if fearful of some intruder. A glance doubly absurd since the garret stood high and inaccessible above all the adjacent floors. This window being the only point on the steep street, as the concierge has told me, from which one could see over the wall at the summit. So actually the architecture of the building is kind of strange. It doesn't kind of narrow in like the garret. It, it kind of branches out. So he's kind of over the edge of the rest of the building. But this allows him to see farther. And it's, it's kind of, it actually does remind me of the other gods, how uh, the other gods, sorry, the other gods, how he has to climb to the top of the mountain to see uh, beyond to uh, this other level of reality, right? He's already in that position. Uh, our, the architecture of the building just gives him that vantage point, which will, of course, be very, very important later in the story. So the sphere of the window, Lovecraft kind of dwells on the sphere of the window for, for another paragraph or so. And there's a little bit of incident about it because he moves towards the window and he begins to look at it. And then that's when the, the old man kind of freaks out and and grabs him. And eventually he's, he's, he, he leaves the, 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 the room kind of feeling a bit disgusted with the, with the old man. Oh, but before he, he leaves, he does write him a little bit of a note saying like he's sorry for the way he acted. And, he, and this is what he says. He does, we don't get we never get Zahn's words literally we get this note where it's kind of paraphrased and later on there's a longer message written but we never get to see it um, he says he's old lonely and afflicted with strange fears and nervous disorders connected with the music and other things he'd enjoyed listening to my music he enjoyed my listening to his music and wished i would come again and not mind his eccentricities but he could not play another his of his weird harmonies and he could not bear hearing them from another nor could he bear having anything in his room touched by another so he, he kind of refuses to play that music, that music that this young man wants to hear, this narrator wants to hear. But he does say, well, you can come by and visit me again. So the, actually, this note is written in French. He, he writes the longer note in German. This note's written in French, but it's, it's bad French. So this guy never really, um, he's, dumb, he's dumb, he can't talk. So I guess that explains why he didn't really study his French too well. Um, but uh, nevertheless, our narrator has a little bit of, of camaraderie with this old man. And this may, again, be a little bit of evidence that our narrator is not totally reliable and that maybe he's mad himself. Is he, he, The narrator says this, uh, He was a victim of physical and nervous suffering, as was I, and my metaphysical studies had taught me kindness. End quote. So he's already been afflicted by some kind of physical and nervous uh, disorder of some sort. Now, he, even he, even the narrator, begins to experience this fear of the, of the window, the same way Eric Zahn has it. Well, anyways, he goes to the landlord and says, well, I guess Zahn's nice enough, but he's a bit, he's a weirdo. So I, and the music's too baffling. So he asks him to, to go to a different floor, to the third floor. And 
as I've established before, this this apartment is basically empty. So it's just him and an aged moneylender um, uh, in the third floor. So the fourth and fifth floor are now between him and, and Eric Zahn. So this this move actually was the idea of Eric Zahn himself, where he basically says, like, if you're hearing my music, that's too bad. I'm sorry, uh, but I have to play. You can go to another floor, and if it's more expensive, I'll pay the I'll pay the difference in the in the rent. Um, but anyways, and it is more expensive. The third floor is more expensive. Uh, in those days, and when you only had walk-ups before elevators, it was the the bottom floors that were more expensive than the top floors. But this doesn't change too much. In fact, our narrator is a bit uh, freaked out by what he was experiencing. So he becomes very anxious to see uh, to see the windows himself. He, he, his curiosity grows as the distance between him and Eric Zahn grows. He, and he wants to continue to hear the music. So he's, at night, he just goes up to the garret, listens outside the window. I think he starts out going to fifth floor, and then eventually he goes all the way up right outside the door of Eric Zahn and listens in to the music. Um, and, and he, well, first, he, he sometimes goes up there during the times and sands away at the theater because he wants to get a closer look at that window. But other times when he's just playing, he tipped, he quote, tiptoes up to the old fifth floor. Then I got bold enough to climb to the last creaking staircase to the peaked garret. There in the narrow hall outside the bolted door with the covered keyhole, I often heard sounds which filled me with indefinable dread, the dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery. It was not that the sounds were hideous, for they were not, but they held vibrations suggesting nothing on this globe of earth. And that at certain intervals, they assumed a symphonic quality which could hardly be conce could hardly conceive as produced by one player. End quote. So uh, he becomes more and more interested in this unnatural music. Unnatural in several ways. Once the, the sounds are off, the, the, the rhythms are off, and it seems one viol is producing a whole symphony of, of sounds, right? You know, when I first started uh, studying music, though, I, I did not really study, just listening to more classical music. You know, I was shocked at like how much you know, music, how much sound comes out of just something like a string quartet, right? If, if you don't listen carefully, you just listen to a symphony or you listen to a, a string quartet, you know, and they both sound, you know, you listen to them kind of the same way, right? Um, but, or a concerto versus a string quartet, you know, it's, it's, but when you kind of listen to the string quartet carefully and you realize it's just four players, you're kind of shocked at just how much sound comes out of just those four instruments, right? Or even in a concerto, how much which one instrument can carry that piece and hold it all together. So, um, but that's not quite what's happening here. I'm just saying it's, it's kind of, unless you really attentively listen to music, you sometimes don't appreciate just how much sound can be produced by one instrument. But that's not what is happening here. What's happening here is really this one viol is somehow producing a symphony of sounds, like the sounds of, of numerous instruments. So anyways, that's kind of how things go for a while. He just kind of eavesdrops on the music. Um, but then one night, and this is the night of the climax of the story, uh, quote, as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking veal swell into a chaotic babble of sound, a pandemonium which would had let me doubt my own shaking sanity had did not come from that barred portal of piteous proof that the horror was real. The awful inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter and which rises out in moments of the most ter terrible fear or anguish. So he hears this call, this scream for help from this, this dumb um, German. And so he, does he break his way in? No, he starts knocking on the door. Um, and Zan uh, 
goes to the window, shutters it, so the door the window was open, and then goes to the door and, and lets him in. So he has to close the door first. It's kind of it's really creepy because it's already been set up. The windows something that really freaks him out. Yet why would the window be be open? Did it open on its own? Did he open it when he plays this music? Or whatever. But he has to close it. Bef- you know, even though he's in this ter- state of terror, right? And a friend has come by. He has to go and close the window before he returns to the door. So anyways, Eric Down lets him in and he starts to inquire what happens. And then he begins to tell his story, but he can't speak, right? He, he's, he's dumb. So he begins, he's a mute. I should say mute. So I don't say dumb German. It makes, makes me sound like a prejudiced person. Uh, the mute German is forced to have to write down his story. And he writes it in German because his French is so bad. Um, so... He's going to tell the whole story of his marvels and terrors. And it, it takes him an hour. So he's writing for a whole hour and the pages are flying off the table as he's writing. And um, then he hears this sound from the window. Or the, I guess they both do. And I think this is the first clear evidence we have that whatever Erikson is f- afraid of via the window is related to sound itself. right? So when I first read this story, I thought somehow... Eric Zahn himself is neutralizing this this horrible outworldly sound, right? You know, he's obviously keeping something at bay. I mean, that's that seems to be the, what's going on here. It's not clear what or how or the me- mechanism of it or or even what's out there. But you know, this is the first evidence we have that it's a sound that that's that's triggering Eric Zahn. Quote: Then I have fancied and heard a sound myself. Though it was not a horrible sound, but rather an exquisitely low and infinitely distant musical note, suggesting a player in one of the neighboring houses or in some abode beyond the lofty walls over which I had never been able to look. Upon Zahn, the effect was terrible, for dropping his pencil suddenly, he rose, seized his viol, and commenced to rend the night with the wildest playing I've ever heard from his bow, save when listening at the barred door. So he goes into his music, right? And this is the music that he's never played for anyone face-to-face, it seems. Um, But he has heard it before. And the rest of the story, the last two pages of the story, really are hard to describe because they're, you know, it's, the music's undescribable, the things in the window, whatever's going on outside the window is undescribable, the changes happening to his, the setting are are basically undescribable. Yet Lovecraft spends two pages kind of working it out. Um, But really, really great effect. I, I love this stuff. I love this part of the story. Um, now it does. Now Lovecraft here writes, or the narrator right, uh, recounts that the Eric Zahn is effectively warding something. Um, he uses the word "war." "Quote: He was trying to make a noise to ward something off or drown something out." So that's why I thought it, he was trying to kind of drown out the music with noise. Um, the, uh, the playing grew fantastic, delirious, and hysterical, yet kept to the last of the qualities of supreme genius, which I had known. Um, now, another weird thing here happens, and there's something that didn't happen before in the pl- when he listened to this strange playing, was that he begins to play a Hungarian dance. Um, now, this kind of folk music was popular in the late 19th, early 20th century. Many classical composers adapted folk music, like maybe Brahms, Leitz. These people did like the Romanian or Hungarian or, or German kind of folk songs. Uh, Chopin did a little bit of that too. It was just a popular thing in the Romantic era. And it carries on into the modernist era as well, where folk music becomes seen as as valuable as the classical tradition. And so you get 
in the Romantic era, it's a lot more kind of adaptations of it. I think in the modernist era, it's more of a efforts to like to copy and learn more directly from this folk music, not just stealing the tunes. Um, but this was a popular Hungarian dance, popular in the theaters. But this gets mixed up with this otherworldly music that Erdogan is, is playing. It's never explained why it's this piece, why it's Hungarian. Um, maybe he's just maybe it's just something he's he's used to playing. Um, I don't know. But before it never was this. Um, so after describing this otherworldly music, we get this chaotic visions uh, through the window um, in the room itself. He writes, I could almost see shadowy satyrs and bacchanals. But satyrs, by the way, his, the, Zarek Zahn was described as a satyr at one point. So he might himself have some kind of supernatural character to him. Maybe he's a throwback to, to some ancient world. It's entirely possible. Um, Quote, I could almost see shadowy satyrs and bacchanals dancing and whirling insanely through the seething abyss of clouds and smoke and lightning. And then I thought I heard a shriller, steadier note that was not from the viola, a calm, deliberate, personal, mocking note from far away in the West. Again, we have the, the kind of the dueling banjos effect here, where some sound from outside, from outside the window, is being confronted with the music of, of Eric Zahn. So the whole scene descends into what he writes is an unimaginable space alive with motion and music and having no semblance to anything on earth. I think the glass breaks, you know, there's like wind going in, darkness, the whole place becomes dark, it becomes mad. And he tries to save himself and Eric Zahn. Um, now he hears a crashing and he hears Eric Zahn fall to the ground at some point. Um, and he tries to drag him away, but, um, but the music doesn't stop. That's what's weird, even though Eric Zahn seems to fall. Um, and when he tries to wake him up, he doesn't respond. But, quote, still the viol shrieked down without slacking. I moved my hands to his head, whose mechani mechanical nodding I was unable to stop, and shouted in his ear that we must both flee from the unknown things of the night. But he neither answered me nor abated the frenzy of his unutterable music. While all through the garret, strange currents of wind seemed to dance in the darkness and babble. When my hand touched his ear, I shuddered, though I knew not why. Knew not why till I felt the still face, the ice-cold, stiffened, unbreathing face whose glassy eyes bulged uselessly into the void. So he dies, right? And so he just escapes um, into the night and wanders the street. And that's when he kind of loses his sense of location and, and that's we're kind of back to the beginning of the story where he can't find this neighborhood anymore he can't lose it he lo loses it no one knows where it is so it might you know the maybe the straightforward way is that to look at this as eric zahn is stopping this evil from from moving into the neighborhood um using music right but when he can't do it anymore and when he's dead maybe that's what affects the change in the neighborhood Maybe Eric Zahn was kind of sustaining this bubble um, through his music. And, and that's why the, the Rue de Say existed, is because of Eric Zahn's music. Um, but I don't know. It, it's all kind of ambiguous, and, but it's wild, and it's a really, really great story. Um, ends, ends right where it begins. A nice... Uh, and then, oh, one last thing. Uh, as for the themes of this story, at least the themes I'm interested in, this is m very much a story of forgetting. Um, 
Uh, now he's an investigator. He's a quester. He's he's one of these people who doesn't really want to forget, although part of him wants to. But on the surface, he wants to find this Rue de Say again and, and figure out, get find answers to his questions. Because one thing that was lost in the chaos of that night was the notes that Eric Dunn wrote, the German notes, and he wants to find those, but they, they're kind of blown away. So the last paragraph is this, despite my most careful searches and investigations, I've never since been able to find the Rue say. but I'm not wholly sorry either for this or for the loss of the undreamable abysses of the closed written sheets, which alone could explain the music of Eric Zahn. So the, even though in the final paragraph it starts out, he's saying, oh, I still want to find this out, I'm still investigating, I'm still searching, but even before the sentence, or no, in the very next sentence, he says, yeah, but it, maybe it's a good thing, right? Maybe it's best we just forget this and I just move on with my life and pretend this never, never happened, right? Um, like everyone in the town that seems to not remember the Ruta say. So I don't know if they're also forgetters. <clears throat> maybe, we should, maybe we should make these set phrases for this podcast. Like you got the investigators and the forgetters. Um, sometimes they're both though, right? In the case of Charles Dexter Ward, you have one character who's both. Um, but anyways, uh, the, at the end of the story, it's a, it's a call to forget and, and not remember what has happened. So anyways, that's, uh, that's my thoughts. Not too much to say about some of the other themes I'm exploring in this podcast. Uh, no real racial themes. It's really a cosmic horror story, and it's a very, very good one. I, I like this one very much. So uh, looking at the order of writing... Next, Mysterious Ship. That, I don't know what's going on with that. I'm not going to do the Mysterious Ship. That's a Juvenalia. It says here December 1921. I know the Mysterious Ship is a, was something he wrote like in 1902 as a kid. And then there's like a longer version. In 1921, did he rewrite it? And that's why it's here. Is this just a typo? It should be a juvenile piece. Anyways, I'm not going to do it. Maybe later. Maybe at the end. Maybe when I do a, a Sweet Armagard. We don't know when. Maybe I should do Armagard in this series too. Maybe I should add it. Slip in Armagard instead of Mysterious Ship. I don't know. For now, I'm just going to skip Mysterious Ship until I figure out what's going on with it. Uh, and next up then is Hypnos. Hypnos will be the next story. March 1922. Um, yeah, we're getting to the big stories here. We're getting to the big important stories. After Hypnos is Herbert West, Reanimator. Then we have a couple short things, but then the unnameable, the hound, the lurking fear, rats in the wall. I mean, they're all like masterpieces from now out mostly, with a few exceptions, uh, small, small pieces. They're all really memorable, important, exciting pieces. Um, so we're getting into it. We're getting close. Um, but after, after the Shun House, though, we're going to have to take a break and go to the letters that Lovecraft wrote from 1924 to 29, maybe supernatural horror and literature. We're going to do some of the revisions he did in the early career, so we're not. It's going to be a while to get there, but um, a lot of great stuff coming up in this podcast. So anyways, let me know what you think of the music of Eric Zahn. I threw a few theories out there. If you uh, share any of those or you oppose any of them or you have your own theory, let me know. Send me a tweet. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, but uh, if not, I'll see you next time when I'll talk about hypnos. See you then.